Hey now, I'm Jack Cush, executive editor of RoomNow.com. It's the 2nd of June, 2017, and this is the Room Now Week in Review. This week on our report, we're going to feature some information about the Brits and their new gout guidelines, and then two crazy reports about nutraceuticals and dietary fiber and osteoarthritis of the knee. It sounds goofy, but it's in the news. At the top of the news is a report about CAMS, that's complementary and alternative medicines, uh, and a study, I think it was in China actually, of 108 patients with early RA uh, and looked at their use of CAMS. 41% of patients use CAMS, um, and what they found interestingly was that those who did use CAM were more likely to have a delay in DMART initiation. Sounds like they were relying on natural therapies to treat what is obviously a systemic disease and may need DMARDs. More importantly, the patients who use CAM also um, had higher disease activity scores that also was involved in um, uh, those delaying the onset of DMARDs. It turned out the thing that was most predictive of an earlier use of DMARD initiation was higher HAC scores, health assessment questionnaires, or functional scores. Again, um, this is a separate kind of patient, a different kind of patient, one that needs to be counseled about the appropriate use of CAMs. Um, a study of axial spondyloarthritis patients um, looked at whether or not the uh, nonsteroidals would have an effect. You know, it's thought that nonsteroidals are just symptomatic therapy, but there is some, some data in the spondylitis world that they may actually have some disease modification effects. And this small study looked at specifically MRI findings in 33 patients who were treated with nonsteroidals only and had axial spondyloarthritis. And what they did see was that there was MRI evidence of less sacroiliitis in those who responded, um, and they had reasonable responses according to ASAS response criteria, that those who responded just to just non-steroidals, that the MRI improved as far as sacroiliitis, and also the bone marrow edema uh, scores also approved as determined by MRI, suggesting that when you control the disease, you get all the good things that go along with that, including um, things that happen at the biologic level and the radiographic level and whatnot. So uh, I don't think that this is proof that nonsteroidals are um, disease-modifying, but I think that it is proof that if you do well with simple therapies, that's good enough. Um, a scleroderma lung study, we know because it looked at things like, uh, looked specifically at whether or not mycophenolate or cyclophosphamide were uh, important in reducing the damage done to the lungs in patients with scleroderma. As a sub-analysis of the scleroderma lung study one and two, where they used either cyclophosphamide or um, mycophenolate with a placebo um, arm, they did show that there was significant reductions in skin thickness scores when you were on either one of those therapies and that neither was actually better than the other, uh, but that both were superior to placebo. Um, again, it's also maybe the weakest score you can do in scleroderma trials. What I learned a long time ago from Ginny Steen and Tom Metzger was that, you know, everybody gets better as far as their skin scores, but this was a placebo-controlled trial and showed that, it, that the skin scores did get better with more aggressive therapy. Important to note nonetheless. Um, there was an interesting report about a rare methotrexate-induced skin necrosis. Um, and it was described in the same way as they were, there are descriptions out there about uh, Stevens-Johnson syndrome and toxic epidermal necrolysis syndrome being all being drug-related. Here they relate um, this necrotizing skin lesion um, event, a rare event, to methotrexate. And it really is the same patients who have methotrexate toxicity. They tend to have renal insufficiency, they get severe mucositis, but in this case they were getting skin necrosis with skin ulcerations, erosions, also, also, uh, also with um, uh, oral ulcers. 
Um, the risk factors were those who had cytopenias and had re renal insufficiency and were over age 60 uh, and were not on folic acid. The interesting thing about these patients, should this be seen, a 17% mortality, very scary. Vindicate, a mnemonic. Uh, do you like mnemonics? I t find them bothersome and I find people who study by mnemonics a bit idiotic, but nonetheless, um, you know, maybe a good mnemonic is worth um, remembering. Is this one worth remembering? Vindicate, a mnemonic for avascular necrosis causes. V for vascular, I for infection, uh, and N for infection, I guess. D for drugs, I for inflammation, C for congenital causes, a for autoimmune, T for trauma, and lastly, E for endocrine. Congratulations, a new mnemonic. Um, a nice study looked at a cohort of women who um, had rheumatoid arthritis and were becoming pregnant. They studied them during their um, um, preconception phase uh, and looked at what happened when they went from pre-pregnancy to the third trimester as far as gene expression. And while they looked at a many different genes, they did find a significant increase in type 1 interferon gene expression. And the question is whether or not that is associated with some of the things that we see later in pregnancy, including maybe better outcomes. But it turns out that they didn't do those correlations, and the best you're going to get out of this is that that's one of the immunologic things that happen as a result of pregnancy, that you get this more of a type 1 interferon gene um, uh, activity. So again, that might be important to know uh, for those of you doing uh, pregnancy and RA research. Uh, a nice survey looked at um, um, adult rheumatologists and whether or not they, looked, they, they cared for kids. And they found that 23% of adult rheumatologists claimed to take care of pediatric cases, uh, those with JIA, um, while 94% of patients were, uh, patients of the, of the doctors, the rheumatologists, were comfortable um, diagnosing JIA. Um, lesser, only uh, two-thirds or three-quarters of the patients were actual comfortable, comfortable treating. Um, I do a lot of surveys. Usually on surveys, people give you the best version of themselves. So these numbers are probably inflated. I doubt that 90% or more are comfortable, and I doubt that three-quarters of you, of you are comfortable managing um, the, the condition. Um, it, it is surprising, though, that there is a large number of rheumatologists who do take care of children in, or adolescents in one way or another, and there surely is a regional and geographic shortage of pediatric rheumatology care. This is a challenge for the discipline overall. Um, good news um, has been the release of the new British Society of Rheumatology um, guidelines on the treatment of gout. Um, they had a guideline, I think, in 2007, and they called for a new one because obviously a lot more uh, new therapies, some um, new information, uh, the rise of, of gout uh, in society. It's affected the UK as much as in the United States. In the UK, it's about 25 to 3% of the population has gout, and in the United States, 8.3 million people have gout. So for a number of reasons, they came up with a pretty extensive guidelines with uh, evidence-based uh, opinions. Um, There's a multidisciplinary pa disciplinary panel, um, and they reviewed the literature, and they came up with a number of factors. I'll leave you with two, which I think are important. Number one, they strongly endorsed, as does the ACR and ULR, the concept of treat to target, that this should be advocated for and that there should be a target of six, uh, and that you get there by any means. They also are a little bit more proactive than other guidelines in stating that early on patients should receive um, urate-lowering therapy, ULT, meaning that as soon as you have multiple attacks, you should be on it. And the, what they're noting in there is that there's a tremendous underutilization and mis, uh, misuse of allopurinol and other 
urate lowering therapies, that they're often reserved for patients with end stage and severe disease, and they're not often being given or maintained in patients with relatively early gout. So they make a big pitch for that. It's a, worth, it's a worthwhile guideline. We reviewed it, and it's, a, and it's high points in, a, in, in about a full-page article on Room Now. You should look at it and see if you agree with how they recommend gout be managed. Um, an interesting report comes out as a, as a sub-analysis of the RACKET study that tells us that you should be using triple DMAR therapy before you use aggressive biologics, specifically the comparator group being those on etanercept and methotrexate. You know, there are two triple DMAR versus biologic trials out there. The TEAR study, um, which was done in early RA, and the RACKET study, which was done in established RA. And they both say the same thing, that it's more effective um, to use the, the cheaper regimen, the triple DMAR regimen, uh, rather than to immediately uh, switch to um, the biologic, etanercept in this case, plus methotrexate, in those patients who fail uh, methotrexate alone. In this specific analysis, they looked at the number of qualities, the quality-adjusted life years, and, and the cost of care, and they could not justify the uh, more aggressive therapy, the more expensive therapy, as being cost-effective, not when they looked at all patients overall. If they did you know, large sub-analyses and found some subsets of very aggressive patients that could be predicted at the outset, you might make a case for it, but either way, it's very clear that our most aggressive therapies still are our most expensive, and maybe not the most cost-effective, which is why we have to jump through the hoops we do when we want to use a biologic. So more information on triple DMAR therapy. Lastly, there's two interesting reports about osteoarthritis of the knee. One comes from David Felsen and his coworkers, which looked at um, whether or not fiber intake may be associated with uh, better outcomes in osteoarthritis. And they looked at patients based on their dietary fiber, dietary intakes, and they looked at those who had symptomatic OA and those who had radiographic OA. And what they showed was those who had a high fiber intake, a, a high amount of fiber intake, were um, much less much less significantly much less likely to have symptomatic OA, but not necessarily less radiographic OA. So it's not clear why the distinction, it's not clear, even clear why fiber uh, in the diet would lead to less symptomatic OA. It could be that fiber in the diet may be anti-inflammatory, uh, a high amount of fiber in the diet may reflect a dietary practice which is advantageous to weight loss and to um, better joint health. Um, but it's really not clear. But nonetheless, high fiber, who knew? Um, and then lastly, there's a, an, another report about chondroitin and um, osteoarthritis of the knee. As you know, uh, it's often combined with glucosamine as a combined product. Um, that was the the subject of the GATE study, the glucosamine arthritis intervention trial that I was a part of and published in the New England Journal over 10, 15 years ago. In this, uh, and one of the arms in that trial was a chondroitin-only trial, and there it did not show to be effective. And there have been numerous trials that have shown very mixed results. Um, and it seems that uh, when this author, Register, and this particular formulation of chondroitin has been used in trials, the results have been always positive. Um, and while that may be, you know, again, I think there was 603 patients in this trial. That it's called the um, CONCEPT trial. Uh, patients were randomized to receive either placebo or Celebrex, 200 milligrams a day, or uh, 800 milligrams a day of chondroitin sulfate. And they showed that the chondroitin sulfate was equal to celecoxib in the clinical outcomes, and that that was superior to placebo. But when they, their main outcomes were a visual analog scale pain score and a, a functional uh, score as well. 
And they showed both of those to be significantly higher, but truly the magnitude of difference between that, the active treatment groups and the placebo group was not very large. Again, it should be, uh, this result should be viewed with some degree of skepticism as um, when these authors report these results, they always look good. When others, it doesn't quite look as good. These results need to be repeated, need to be repeated with other products and by other investigators to make chondroitin sulfate a, a recommendation. Now, I have one major rule with regard to nutraceuticals, uh, and that is the more it costs, the less it works. If it's cheap and patients think it works, knock yourself out. It does have a heparin-like effect, so it shouldn't be given to patients who are at risk for bleeding or those who are on blood thinners. But, you know, I don't see any damage being done with chondroitin sulfate. I'm also not very sure of the potential benefits. But this is a large trial. It m merits consideration and discussion. It also merits reinvestigation. That's it for this week at roomnow.com. Go to the website to see more and get these links. See you next week. The phone's ringing.